thank you again for joining us on the Developmental Disabilities Association's Encouraging Abilities podcast. I am your host, DDA Communications Manager, Evan Kelly. Uh, joining me today is Dr. Laverne Jacobs. Uh, Dr. Jacobs is a full professor at the University of Windsor, a faculty of law and a former assistant associate dean. rather. She teaches, researches, writes, all in the areas of disability rights law, administrative law, human rights law. She's published uh, and presented both here in Canada and around the world. Uh, and now Dr. Jacobs has been in the news fairly recently. She was elected to the United Nations Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. The committee monitors the implementation of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities by countries that have ratified it. Uh, now, UN CRPD committee members are independent experts like Dr. Jacobs, selected from countries around the world. The, the special thing about this is uh, Dr. Jacobs is the first ever Canadian elected to serve on this committee. And if that's not enough, Dr. Jacobs founded and directs the Law, Disability and Social Change Project. It's a research and public advocacy center at the Windsor Law that looks uh, that works to foster and develop inclusive communities. So, it's, so thank you very much for joining me today, uh, Dr. Jacobs. It's really quite an honor to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show, Evan. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, those accomplishments go on and on. Uh, when you hear that, you know, someone talk about that, how does that make you feel? Well, I think that, uh, as with most people, it's, it can be a bit awkward to be placed in the spotlight. But I primarily feel very grateful to have had the opportunity and the experiences that I've had. Um, I'm grateful and excited to be able to use those experiences to contribute to the uh, the task of furthering the rights of persons with disabilities. And overall, ultimately, I think that it's not the number of experiences that you have, but the ways in which you use them to contribute to the community that's important. Yes, absolutely. No. So what, right straight to, that, to the UN committee, um, uh, what does it mean to you to be not just elected to it, obviously there's a very select handful of people, but to be the first Canadian on, on this committee, how does that, uh, what does that mean to you? Yeah, well, thank you for the question. Placing everything just in a bit of context, I'd say to start that my concern for disability rights is prompted by my academic and professional experience, as well as by my lived experience as a person with physical disabilities. Um, I use a wheelchair. And I've seen significant and very positive turns in legal academia. One in particular <clears throat> is that um, I've seen people have begun to realize in a much more um, holistic way the challenges faced by others. So I've seen this not only in academia, but I've also seen this in the practice of law and in society more generally. And so the more that we accept the intersecting identities and growing knowledge that um, growing knowledge about uh, individuals and their experiences, the more that we see that equality rights may look different for different people um, because of their different lived experiences. So tying this back to what it means to be the first Canadian elected to the CRPD, I can say that it's a great honour to be part of a committee that works to um, define equality rights um, and set international norms but also to do that at this very point in time when there's such a growing recognition of intersectionality. Um, you know, I, uh, as you've mentioned, we're independent experts, and so um, I don't represent, uh, you know, views of Canada. But I think that coming from Canada and having some academic here, 
um, where I've had the chance to reflect and analyze on various experiences of disability rights law really gives me a backdrop that I can draw from. I mean, of course, as with any country, there's, you know, positive elements and um, negative elements, but um, we certainly have a unique tapestry that I can draw from. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a great honor, I think, to be the first Canadian elected. So how many, how many countries uh, have ratified this? How many involved? 183 countries. And growing, I hope. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is end growing. No, a very large number. Yeah. So, can you tell me a little bit about your role within the committee? Yes, absolutely. So, the committee does four main things. I've mentioned a couple of them already. Um, under the optional protocol, it um, receives complaints um, from individuals and groups, and it also receives um, uh, inquiries. So. Um, Requests to conduct inquiries into uh, states <clears throat> when, when there are allegations of serious and <clears throat> excuse me systemic violations of the convention. Um, the CRPD also conducts uh, regular reviews of countries. So countries file reports um, first two years after uh, they have um, the the convention has come into force for them, and then every four years after that. So um, the CRPD committee uh, conducts these um, constructive dialogues with the uh, state's parties about their uh, reports. And the reports really are kind of a, an overview of how the country is doing in terms of um, putting in place mechanisms, et cetera, to further the rights of persons with disabilities. Another major function of the CRPD committee is to provide general comments. And so these general comments serve as interpretive guidance for, um, for how to interpret the various articles of the convention. So there are eight general comments. You know, the most recent one actually just came out last week, dealing with um, the right to work uh, and employment. But there are eight general comments in total right now, and um, they deal with topics such as inclusive education, women and girls with disabilities, and other topics. And um, they really are uh, important in terms of um, serving as, you know, uh, guidance for state parties when they are trying to uh, determine, you know, the best way to, to understand what the convention actually is trying to uh, get across. Um, and I think the final thing is that the CRPD fulfills various other functions. So. There are statements and guidelines that are sometimes issued. Um, just recently, again, um, this month, there was a, a set of guidelines issued relating to deinstitutionalization mm -hmm. of persons with disabilities. Yeah, and um, you, you know, I'm sure that DDA is uh, aware of, of this. So um, these guidelines were created after several months of consultation, and um, deinstitutionalization, uh, you know is of, of huge importance to, to many, including... Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so, so sitting on the committee would mean uh, being involved in some way with these additional, um, these additional functions, such as the creation of guidelines, et cetera. So um, as a member of the committee, I'd be involved in these um, broad areas, these four broad areas. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's about it. <laughs> if I can just say, I, I think it's, it's wonderful that you're asking this question, because I think that with such a new role, it's sometimes uh, 
somewhat unclear as to what committee members do. Um, you yeah. know, people sometimes think, yeah, people sometimes think that um, the role is one of advocacy before the uh, CRPD committee, which it's not. So I've had people, for example, reach out to me to um, to see if I can, you know, represent them, which I can't. Um, but um, but yeah, these are some of the the primary things that uh, members of the committee do. Right, just a just a great big overarching look at things. Law and Disability, your book, uh, Law and Disability in Canada, was published in 2021. So when did you begin working on it? Thanks so much for the question. So, yes, Law and Disability in Canada, uh, it's the first Canadian textbook on law and disability um, in Canada, and it was published last year. And I think that in some ways I started writing it when I first created my seminar in Law and Disability, which I teach at Windsor Law. Um, possibly even a bit before that, as I prepared for that um, that first seminar. But I brought together um, five colleagues from across the country to put together this book, and we started writing in 2017. So it took four years to create the book, um, and this was primarily due to the original research that we collectively put into the book. Um, there wasn't much written on some of the topics, not much written at all on some of the topic areas that we wanted to cover in terms of the interaction between people with disabilities and the law. Some of the topics that we cover include community living, social benefits, mental health and specialized courts, um, and the criminal law and justice system and persons with disabilities. We really wanted to create a book that would fill gaps in the law school curriculum because not much is taught in law schools about persons with disabilities um, and their everyday you know, engagement with the law. So we also wanted to, we wanted to fill these gaps, but we also wanted to foster respect um, for persons with disabilities um, in the law, in the legal context, regardless of the area of the law. So um, those were some of our goals. And yeah, it took us four years to, to put together this first edition. Now, uh, this, is this now a book part of the law curriculum in many schools or is this sort of with, just with Windsor, or is, or is it a book that anybody can just pick up and read? Well, it's actually a book that anyone can pick up and read, but it's designed to be um, a textbook within the law school curriculum. We have had a considerable amount of take-up already, so uh, we're quite excited about that. Um, and we've also um, had invitations to speak about the book, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, so uh, the book, one final thing I can say is that the book is not only designed for the law school curriculum, it's also designed for um, people who teach in areas that are uh, kind of adjacent to law. So um, people in human resources, um, people in areas like social work, um, disability studies, of course. And so there, there's quite a wide potential audience for the book. Um, now, you mentioned you working with five other authors, all legal experts in the field. So how do you define who gets to write about what, and how do you, how do you sort of put that all together in a cohesive fashion? Yeah, it's a great question. We wrote primarily in our fields of interest, so um, this helped, uh, helped us because these were areas in which we already had expertise. But it also helped the book to cut across the law school curriculum. So. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm very interested in equality rights law and uh, the interactions of individuals with government. And so this is an area of law that's known as administrative law. 
but what's um, what's unique about what I do, the work that I do, is that I examine how questions of disability equality or disability inequality um, exist and how they can be dealt with in government itself. So it's really at the points where people with disabilities interact with the government, um, such as through security, uh, securing disability benefits, uh, workers' compensation, et cetera, that I focus on. So I focused on um, a chapter relating to equality and um, uh, persons with disabilities uh, generally. So there's a chapter that um, that looks at uh, equality law, um, human rights law, et cetera, um, and international, um, international law. But I also um, have a chapter that looks at community living, which was a particular interest of mine. So it um, traces the history of community living, examines key cases in Canada and uh, internationally, and considers some topics related to living in the community and acquiring appropriate support, including during uh, emergencies um, such as COVID, which went on for you know quite a bit of um, covered quite a bit of, of the period of time when we were writing. Um, my colleagues similarly wrote on areas of expertise, uh, their areas of expertise. So that included uh, criminal law, um, employment law, um, mental health and illness, um, women and girls with disabilities, etc. I really like that um, community living is a bit of a focus for yourself from, from a legal point of view. Obviously, that's a huge one for us. We're, we're all about the community living. And uh, uh, you may not be aware, we just launched a documentary um, called Doing yep. the Impossible. Uh, the story, I am aware. The story of the, <laughs> oh, good, the story of the Developmental Disabilities Association. It's, uh, it's really, really a, a great piece that, you know, I'm not to, I shouldn't be sitting here plugging our own thing, but <laughs> here we go. Uh, sure. But that's available on our website at develop.bc.ca. And, it, and it, it, you know, it sort of goes from 1952 where our founder sort of becomes the uh, the spark for community living here in British Columbia and beyond and deinstitutionalization it's quite a quite a good story right. yeah I did see I did see information about it on the uh, on the website and um, I'm looking forward to having a chance to, to seeing the documentary in full um, in the the chapter that I wrote and I was very surprised to find how little had been written about the law relating to community living but uh, in the chapter in Canada in the chapter that I um, wrote, I do use uh, BC legislation, actually, as one of my examples. Fantastic. Moving on a bit now, you've been a lawyer for over 20 years. Uh, since you started, are disability rights uh, better? Are, they, are we more inclusive? Is there anything that's concerning right now that needs to be addressed in your mind? Um, well, I think that, yes. I mean, yes to both. I mean, um, I think that there have been positive advances, but I think that there are also challenges that we need to address. Um, so what Canada, I think, um, has done well is that it's had legislation in place for uh, quite some time. So historically, um, we see uh, legislation relating to the equality rights of persons with disabilities um, being enacted, you know, from the 1960s onward, so... Um, things like the Human Rights Code coming into place in 1962 or the Ontario Blind Persons uh, Rights Act um, coming into place in 1970. Um, the Human Rights Code, sorry, I was referring to was Ontario. But um, we see kind of an early recognition of disability. Um, at the same time, 
I think that even if historically we've had this legislation, a lot of legislation has come through um, the work of advocates, right? So lawyers um, pushing for lawyers and others, not always lawyers, uh, members of the community, pushing um, to have disability added, uh, for example, as a prohibited ground under the charter or um, sometimes in uh, legislation itself, um, mm -hmm. the creation of accessibility legislation, etc. So I think that um, in terms of uh, what we've seen uh, go well, you know, I think we kind of have a, a, a long history, a kind of a long foundation. But I think that in terms of improvement, there are, you know, um, a myriad of concerns that um, have been highlighted by COVID-19 and that really need to be addressed. And I think that we need to um, not always have to rely on advocates, right? So I think it would be good if governments were a bit more proactive in, mm -hmm. um, yeah, in, in moving these issues forward. So, um, so yeah, I guess in, in my uh, 20 years as a lawyer um, and as a law professor, I would say that um, there are still issues that need to be addressed and that perhaps the process could be, um, the process could be uh, improved as well. Mm -hmm. Now, you make an interesting point about, I'm not sure people would necessarily understand what you mean by saying we don't have to just rely on advocates. It's, 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 it's sort of, do you mean we're sort of need to get to the issues before they happen in a sense? Well, yeah, I mean that um, we should be creating pathways. Um, and I'm not saying that they're not there. They just could be stronger. So creating pathways so that um, it's easier to recognize what these issues are. So if you take uh, accessibility legislation as an example, the whole idea there is to have kind of a, a proactive way of knocking down barriers, even before they become barriers, you know, exactly. is often the way described. And so I think that that's a start, but th that type of approach, which is more proactive, could be um, implemented in other areas as well. So, for example, um, uh, I think one of the kind of substantive issues that we're seeing a lot, um, you know, we're having a lot of challenges with in the disability community deal with poverty, right? So, um, you know, the impact of poverty on people with disabilities and people from intersectional um, backgrounds, so women with disabilities, people of color with disabilities. Um, and as an academic, I've seen that it's, you know, quite clear that um, the impact of poverty has led to you know, all kinds of um, uh, negative implications for people with disabilities. So we need to have avenues where those types of issues are addressed uh, before, you know, the worst happens. So we almost need to, you know, I, I've been using the word universality more than than accessibility or, or even inclusion or because accessibility in, in a lot of ways um, to me says we've designed something oh but now we have to go back and redesign it because now we have to make it accessible but if we approach laws if we approach anything in terms of design or uh, you know uh, human rights what have you from a universal perspective maybe that's just a better way to go yeah I, I agree I agree with that yeah so can you tell us about law disability and social change project yeah absolutely so the Law, Disability, and Social Change Project is a uh, research and public advocacy center at um, University of Windsor's Faculty of Law. 
um, we work to foster more inclusive communities. So kind of building on what you've just uh, mentioned, um, our goal is really to uh, make sure that communities are not just, um, you know, accessible, you know, have space for people with disabilities, but that they actually um, are, you know, open and welcoming and understand different ways of, of being. So that's what, a, uh, that's what our, our primary goal is. We have three main pillars. We conduct research, and I would say that's probably our, our major pillar. So we conduct research into uh, various topics relating to law and disability, so disability discrimination generally. We've looked at uh, transportation inequality. Um, we've looked at um, other areas as well, um, uh, communities, marginalized communities and uh, disability benefits. Um, our second area is public engagement, so uh, mainly education. And I can give you an example. Uh, we get into the community. We, um, we have held uh, information seminars in um, the local rehabilitation hospital, for example, on law and disability topics. Um, and public advocacy is our third pillar. So, you know, that's just kind of sharing that education and knowledge. Um, uh, it can be with other, uh, other NGO groups or it can be um, on our own. Uh, so those are the main things that, um, that we do. Now, in terms of education, uh, obviously you're, a lot of your audience are um, university mm -hmm. students uh, you know, in law. Do you target any uh, high schools or anything like that with some of this information? Um, it's No, actually high schools, I shouldn't say no, but high schools are not on our list. But um, I was, what we do is uh, we reach out to um, people beyond uh, university as well. So, um, you know, we have been involved and invited to conduct workshops, for example, um, on some of the topics in the textbook. So, um, so yes, we do reach out, but we reach out more broadly to community um, than just university students. Gotcha. So, tell what are some of the more recent projects from the uh, the, the project? Mm -hmm. uh, well, we contributed to the development of the Accessible Canada Act. Um, and so that was done at the time when the uh, statute was being created. Um, a recent study from this year um, dealt with the Social Security Tribunal, where we uh, examined the experiences of um, individuals who were seeking to appeal their denial of CPP benefits, so Canada uh, Pension Plan Disability Benefits. Um, and we looked more particularly at uh, a navigator system that had been set up by the tribunal to see, you know, whether it um, was working well and how it could um, how it could benefit more effectively people with disabilities and from other marginalized communities. Um, other things that we've been involved with, we regularly provide summaries of um, key human rights tribunal decisions dealing with disability. Um, in 2021, last year, we created an annotated Accessible Canada Act, which is a, a free resource available on our website. Um, we've also created, there are a number of things, but one last one I'll mention is we, during COVID-19, we created a database of, um, uh, of you know, uh, news stories, news articles dealing with COVID and persons with disabilities, as that was really the principal way to get information at the time. There were no cases, et cetera. And 
that's also available through um, our website. So we are involved in a number of, of different types of projects. Now, you mentioned, uh, you're an author, of course. Um, you mentioned uh, to me a, a little while ago about a, another book you're writing. Can you tell me about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm currently in the process of writing a book called um, Law and the um, Right of Access from um, Litigation to Citizen Participation. And what it is is a, a book that looks at accessibility legislation and its growth. Um, so um, the move away from kind of uh, human rights adjudicative approaches to approaches that are designed to be more proactive in uh, removing barriers for people with disabilities. Um, in this book, I, I look at um, this development both historically and comparatively. So um, I look at other countries as well. Um, but I also try to um, look at and focus on the interaction between people with disabilities and uh, the government. So there's a lot of consultation in these types of um, uh, these types of um, processes for developing accessibility standards. And so I focus on on the ways in which people with disabilities are engaged and the challenges that they face. When do you expect to be finished that one? Um, well, I, that book should be out in um, late 2023 or early 2024 is the latest. So another solid year of work for you then. <laughs> <laughs> are you or are you, any of your cohorts involved in, in sort of looking at the, the new proposed disability benefit that the Canadian government is putting together? Oh, that's a good question. So um, we have not been um, asked to do any background research but research, but uh, as an academic, I am involved in, um, uh, you know, a conference, an academic conference, where we'll be discussing the issue. Um, but uh, in terms of, um, you know, research for this actual, the creation of the legislation, no, we, we haven't been involved in that. How can organizations like DDA better serve the needs of our community? Well, I think the best thing that can be done by any organization is to keep in touch with members of the disability community that you that you serve and to ensure that you can support those in the community to share their concerns, um, you know, through the avenues where they need to go. So um, I believe that listening and effective and sometimes innovative ways of supporting is, um, is absolutely key. Okay, well, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today has been Dr. Laverne Jacobs. Uh, Dr. Jacobs is a professor at the University of Wind Windsor teaching uh, disability rights law, administrative law, and, of course, the first Canadian in history to join the UN's Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Really honoured to have you on the show today, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Evan. <laughs>